Our constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among its citizens. Those are the words of Justice John Marshall Harlan. Today, I'm joined by Coleman Hughes, the author of a powerful, indeed a courageous new book, The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. Coleman is a writer, podcaster, and opinion columnist who writes about issues related to race, public policy, applied ethics. His writing has been featured in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, many, many other publications. And he's a regular contributor at CNN and the Free Press. And a few years ago, he was included in the Forbes 30 Under 30. Welcome, Coleman. It's a pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here. I've been following your work for many years, uh, and I'm pleased to talk about your book. When it came out, I saw an announcement. I think it was on Twitter. It's coming soon. So I rushed to get an advanced copy to read it. And I wanted to dive in just to get on the table what your claim is. So maybe a few decades ago, the idea of colorblindness would not have been as controversial as it is today. And in effect, people, when they hear colorblindness, they process it very differently. So I wanted to get a, a read from you. Why is that? Why, how do you understand colorblindness and why has it come to have such a bad reputation today? As you pointed out, if you go back to, say, the late 60s, the days of the high classical civil rights movement, almost everyone who wasn't a Jim Crow segregationist would have agreed that colorblindness is the end goal. In other words, we want to get to a point in society where a person's race, a person's skin color is considered totally irrelevant. It's not just the civil rights leaders that would have agreed with this at the time. Even the book Black Power, the manifesto of the movement of the same name, acknowledged that ultimately the end goal should be colorblindness and we can disagree about how best to get there. And those were quite considered to be quite radical activists. In the past 50 years, partly due to the influence of critical race theory, which was a conscious attack on colorblindness, uh, a departure from the philosophy of the civil rights movement, even in its self-concept. Uh, the influence of critical race theory spread throughout the academy and throughout the wider culture. Um, the influence of intellectuals and writers like Robin DiAngelo, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Ibram Kendi, and others, um, all of whom take the basic thesis from critical race theory that colorblindness is not the way to go, that it's naive, it's a Trojan horse for white supremacy, uh, and it's not up to the task of fighting racism. Uh, this has become essentially the dominant view um, on the left and among progressives. And uh, part of it is that colorblindness is seen as ineffective. The argument is that colorblindness basically hasn't uh, achieved anything in the past 50 years. We still have racial inequality of outcome. And therefore, what we have to do is, you know, inject race into every public policy, state, local, and, and federal, even this is the most extreme version, that we need to distribute COVID emergency aid to restaurants based on aid. We need to distribute uh, antivirals based on aid as, uh, as, as, was recommended by the governor of New York during COVID. So th that's in a nutshell how it came to be that colorblindness used to be agreed upon by everyone. 
and now it's seen as the enemy. And one thing that I was interested to learn from your book that the idea of colorblindness goes back even farther. It, it, it was it has its roots in the abolitionist movement. Can you share a bit about uh, that context? I think that will be surprising to people. Yeah, so there's a narrative that's emerged today that colorblindness is somehow a conservative idea. Uh, the idea is that it came from the neoconservative think tanks in the 1970s, people like Nathan Glazer, uh, Daniel Bell, and so forth. This is a total false history, uh, a rewriting of, of the history of colorblindness done by its enemies. The truth of the matter is that the earliest mentions of colorblindness that I'm aware of actually go back to the 19th century to uh, Wendell Phillips. Wendell Phillips was a, a staunch abolitionist. He was a friend of William Lloyd Garrison. Um, he actually took over the presidency of the um, American Anti-Slavery Society from William Lloyd Garrison because William Lloyd Garrison thought that basically the movement's mission was done once slavery was abolished, but Phillips wanted to continue it until black people had full equal rights, including voting rights. So in other words, this was a man too radical for William Lloyd Garrison, one of the, if not the most famous abolitionist in American history. And the earliest mentions of the term colorblindness come from him, where he is proposing a 14th amendment, which hadn't yet been uh, uh, written, uh, he's proposing a 14th Amendment that made the, quote, color, a government colorblind, which is to say a government that cannot see or distinguish between different races of human beings. Uh, and that's actually where colorblindness comes from, not from the conservative movement or the neoconservative movement, but from the most radical abolitionists that wanted to go just go beyond simply abolishing slavery in the 1860s and 70s. Now, when you write about this topic, and it, it it really bears emphasis just how controversial this has become. When you, I've heard people say this, and I've re read about it, and we've talked about it in our other episodes. When people hear colorblindness now as as an ideal or as something to aspire to, they take it to mean that it's like a self delusional position. Like you don't see color; I just see people in some generic sense. And what I take from your book is that it, that's. That's not really what it's about. It's about putting an individual's character as at the forefront versus some unchosen feature of their identity. And, and in a sense, it's race or at least people's color or sort of cultural features, those are real things, but it's, it's not the deciding factor about how we think about people. Is that resonant with how you view this? Yeah, and I blame the misunderstanding in part on people on my side of the issue people say things like, I don't see color. And understandably, that's a confusing phrase because you do see color, right? Everyone who watches this video can see that I'm black um, and, and not white and not Asian and so forth, right? So to say I don't see color, it, inevitably, you know, people feel gaslit on the other side of the issue because you're claiming not to be able to see race. You're claiming not to be able to, to even be capable of racism which is, I think, also misleading and, and the wrong approach. I think whenever someone is tempted to say that, I think they should instead say, you know, I try to treat people without regard to race. I try my very best to treat my, my friends, my employees, my colleagues 
without regard to their race. The point of colorblindness is not to pretend that you can't see race. We all see race and we can, we're all even capable uh, of being biased, uh, just like we're capable of being selfish or capable of being, you know, any one of a, any number of human flaws. The point of colorblindness is to see race, but disregard it as a reason to treat anyone differently. The idea is you notice that I'm black, but you're not going to treat me like you're not going to treat me differently than you would any other guest on this show. That's what colorblindness means. And that's what we have to find again, if we're going to manage as a multiracial democracy um, for the next several hundred years, we have to find that as our North star, we have to find that as the ethic to teach our children. Um, if we want to encourage racial harmony in this diverse and increasingly diverse nation. Now, a couple of things that come up in the book I, I wanted to draw out. One, you, and you said this earlier in the conversation, that you, you characterize the people who are opposing colorblindness or who tarnish its name, they do it consciously or there's, there's an agenda there, and they characterize themselves somewhat confusingly for many people as anti-racists. And in the book, you come out really strongly it critic criticizing that. So how do you understand the individuals and intellectuals behind anti-racism? How does that, how do you differentiate yourself from that perspective? Uh, there's this redefinition of racism that has been going on since the sixties, but has gotten more and more popular, which is to say that racism equals prejudice plus power. That's the second part of that. That's important because the idea is that black people don't have power. Therefore, black people and people of color in general can't be racist towards white people. Only white people can be racist towards um, people of color. Now, this is very convenient if you're a person of color because it lets you off the hook for anything heinous you may say or do to white people because it, by definition, can't be racist. Very convenient. Problem is, that was not the definition of racism uh, that Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin and civil rights leaders were fighting. In fact, I think Martin Luther King defined racism um, in his final book, Where Do We Go From Here, as, quote, the doctrine of congenital inferiority of a people. Racism, uh, for, for, for Dr. King, he said multiple times that black supremacy would be equally evil as white supremacy. The version of racism that was fought uh, in the March on Washington and at Selma was the idea that any group of people is congenitally inferior, uh, inferior to uh, any other group of people. That can go in any direction. It can go from white people to black people, black people to white people, Asians to Hispanics, Hispanics to Jews, etc. It can go in any direction and we should fight it any direction that it goes. We should not define it such that only certain races of people can definitionally be racist to others. Now, what's happened with the modern anti-racist movement, the so-called anti-racist movement, uh, which um, I, I take aim at uh, mostly because their, their books have been the most popular examples of it. Um, I take aim, aim at Ibram Kendi and Robin DiAngelo in particular. Um, but they stand in for a larger way of thinking. Uh, they stand in for an anti-racist movement that essentially claims to be a continuation 
of Martin Luther King, but has completely changed the contents of the philosophy. Instead of defining racism as something that any group of people can point at any other group of people, it defines racism as something only white people are capable of. Um, and in doing so, it allows not only for racist rhetoric against white people to be tolerated, it allows for racist policies against white people to be tolerated in the name of anti-racism. In the book, I give many, many examples um, from Sarah Jong at the New York Times to uh, a lady by the last name of Kilalani at Yale, who have just said basically the worst racist things you could possibly say about any group about white people. Um, but you know, nothing happens, right? There's no censure for them. There's, there's, uh, their institutions back of them, uh, essentially. I give examples in chapter three of policies, uh, from emergency racial triage policies during COVID to, uh, you know, affirmative action and so on and so forth policies that openly discriminate against white people in the name of sort of balancing out history and, uh, rather than be called what they are, which is racist by, by any, uh, by the old definition, let's say by the Martin Luther King definition, they are called anti-racist. So this is this, the anti-racist movement, uh, it's, it's not just not true. It's the opposite of the truth. It actually endorses racism. It endorses racial stereotypes. Uh, it endorses racial discrimination and it has cleverly rebranded itself as anti-racist and it's amazing. It's like a, it's, it's like a company that keeps the label and just changes the product on the inside. I wanted to turn to what I, I've been following your commentary on this and I saw that you were invited to speak at Ted, uh, last late last year, it came out, you had a talk on colorblindness. And I was surprised to see the, what actually happened with that. So there, there's, I think of it as a kind of scandal, but the reason I want to talk about it is it struck me as a kind of barometer or an indicator of the, the state of affairs or the way, the openness to the idea of colorblindness and rather the closed attitude that many people have to it. So maybe you could give us sort of a thumbnail sketch of what happened with your experience at TED and how do you think of it? So if people want the long version, they can look up my piece at the free press where I give the detailed blow by blow. The short version is that I was invited to Ted to give a talk this past year on colorblindness, the topic of the book. Uh, I gave the talk and there was a, a, a swift and intense backlash among a small number of employees at Ted and those employees actually didn't want to publish my talk at all. And what ended up happening is they ended up publishing my talk nominally uh, on their website, but uh, intentionally under promoting uh, my talk so that it had really a tiny fraction of the views of every other TED talk to, to an extent that it just was not plausible um, uh, they ended up essentially sandbagging the talk online because so many of their employees wanted to, to thwart me essentially. 
Um, and I went, I went public about this um, in the free press. And what happened is, is the, there was a classic Streisand effect, which is when you try to suppress something and that's the fact you try to suppress it comes out, it ends up backfiring and more people end up seeing the thing than ever would have seen it um, had you just treated it normally. Um, and so uh, that's what ended up happening. And I think Ted ended up coming under a lot of warranted criticism for sort of claiming to be this space for open ideas, um, but suppressing a talk that about a, a talk expressing a view that is widely held by Americans to be pro colorblindness is not a fringe viewpoint. Um, you, it, you probably won't hear Democrats on the national level support it, but if you actually poll Democrats, uh, it's, it's still broadly popular among Democrats. That's why uh, a, a state like California can have a plebiscite, two plebiscites in my lifetime about affirmative action both of which come out anti-affirmative action in a blue state that's also highly diverse. So uh, the fact that Ted had such trouble uh, sort of treating me fairly as a very non-fringe viewpoint on the race issue became a perfect indicator of how these elite spaces like Ted, elite institutions have uh, allow themselves to enter a bubble where certain ideas are so controversial there that are actually widely held uh, by the public. And I think it also unintentionally, because I, I, I truly have nothing against TED as an organization, um, and, I, and I still don't, but it, I think it, un, it unleashed a whole undercurrent of people that have been mad at TED for years for, for moving in a more woke for lack of a better word, a more woke direction. And I think my going public about that story became kind of a lightning rod for pent up anger at Ted over the years. And I think it became um, bigger than I intended it to be as a result. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things you wrote about, and correct me if I'm misremembering this, as part of having you on stage, they, they wanted to have someone come on and, and they, there was another debate that was arranged as, as a part of the deal to ensure this would happen. And, and all of those seemed like those are either ad hoc or very unusual things for them to do in, in trying to deal with your position fairly. Is that, am I remembering that accurately? Yes. The first idea was to attach a debate to the end of my TED talk in one video. And I didn't agree to this because I, it was sending the signal and the message that my TED talk can't be heard on its own. My TED talk has to be heard with the opposing viewpoint uh, and, and it can't be taken down without a chaser, so to speak. And I thought that's precisely the wrong signal to send. Part of why I um, wrote this book is, is not just because I'm, you know, f endlessly fascinated by the topic of race. I'm actually quite bored by the topic of race. Uh, because I don't think a person's race tells you much of anything about them. Part of why I wrote this book is because I want it to become more acceptable to have the viewpoint that I have, because I just, I, I know that there's a huge slice of people out there who 
essentially agree with my philosophy about race, live out the colorblind philosophy in their own lives with their friends and their family and so forth, but just cannot talk about this publicly for fear of getting canceled. So part of my project is not simply an academic fascination with the subject, but also to try to make it more okay to talk about this subject and to say, I try not to, I, I try to treat people without regard to race and I want race out of my public policy. If you want to do public policy based on income, if you want to help the poor, sign me up. I'm all for that, but I'm not for judging people um, on the basis of their skin color. So I want to make that more acceptable. To, to that end, it doesn't really serve me if I'm putting out this TED Talk out there with a warning label like, hey, this is a super controversial idea, swim at your own risk, etc. So I didn't agree to that. And eventually I did agree to a debate to be released two weeks after the TED Talk was released. And that's how I ended up, we ended up finding a compromise. I want to just pause for a moment and just ask you to... Uh to hear about your perspective on something I shared with you before the conversation to see one, if you'd read it and two, what your reactions to it are. So my views on race have been influenced significantly by John McWhorter's work and others. And one of the other influences on me and the, the, the namesake of our organization is Ayn Rand. And part of what I get from Ayn Rand is the perspective on the positive view of individuals as unique and valuing them individually, not by any unchosen features and so on. And I, I was curious to see if she, she wrote on the issue of racism when it was cresting in the public awareness in 1963. I shared that with you. I was curious if you had any reactions to that, any thoughts, because my assumption was that there would be points of contact and, and maybe some common ground on her analysis of racism and yours. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I actually hadn't read that essay by Ayn Rand in 1963 until you sent it to me, and I was fascinated by it for two reasons. Uh, so first, let me just say, I think her her argument is um, spot on, her argument being that uh, racism, uh, racism at the end of the day, it is a rejection of individualism because you are by definition judging an individual by the traits or the perceived traits of their group. Uh, no, nobody chooses who they're born into. Uh, nobody experiences being the average member of any group they belong to. You only ever experience being the person you in fact are. Does me no good that the average man is five foot nine. I'm going to live my whole life five foot seven. That's how that works with respect to every, every trait that we have. Um, it doesn't matter what the average income of my race is. I have the exact income I have, and that's my reality. Um, uh, I have the exact intelligence I have, the character I have, and so forth. And so to prejudge me based on what you think are the average or typical traits of my race is a rejection of the individual. And Ayn Rand, as a staunch individualist, took, the, took that strong position against racism. And the first half of the essay, she, she's mostly talking about racism against blacks in particular. It was also interesting, the second half of the essay, she takes aim at the idea of affirmative action and quotas uh, or reverse racism for the same exact reason and makes the point that you really can't make the first half of the argument without also rejecting the uh, forms of discrimination against whites, Asians, etc., cetera, um, or pro-minority pro discrimination. So 
she's spot on in her argument. Two observations. One, it was very similar to Zora Neale Hurston's argument. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston is the the beloved author of uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Uh, but in her memoir, she makes the point that uh, both racial shame and racial pride just make no sense because you know if you if you if if as a jewish person you feel some pride because einstein invented physics well you had nothing to do with that the fact you happen to belong to the same tribe as this brilliant person should not make you feel pride in fact it it smacks of a kind of substitute a cheap substitute for the things you might actually want to have pride in such as the achievements you've made as an individual by the same token to feel ashamed that certain members of your group behave badly uh, makes no sense either because you've got no control over that. Um, and so, so uh, uh, Ayn Rand makes the, ex ex the exact same point that Zora Neale Hurston uh, makes. And then secondly, I found it interesting she was making the arguments against quotas and against affirmative action as early as 1963 because most of the writing on that subject you know, it's hard to find that many public intellectuals and writers opposing affirmative action that early uh, because it hadn't even really been implemented yet uh, at the at the federal level until the Nixon, the Nixon administration, really. And so in a way, she was she was sort of five to 10 years ahead of her time in making the argument against affirmative action. And I thought that spoke very highly of her. I, I mentioned before setting that up, I mentioned John McWhorter and another person whose work uh, connected to race that I've been re-following closely is uh, Glenn Lowry. I'm sure you, you, you've, I think, I know you've talked to both of them. One of the things I wanted to connect this to is I've been impressed with their work in trying to ascertain what is the state of racism today. And I think in your book, one of the things I appreciate about it is you take great care to avoid overstating the problem, which I think a lot of people do, but also not understating the problem, which I think is, if, to speak candidly, I think, say, 20 years ago, my view was really, I just didn't understand the, the state of racism as it actually was. And I think I was maybe had rose-colored glasses that it was better than it was. And I, I my view has really changed over the years. And, and one thing I've come to realize is it's, it's really hard to figure out where things actually stand. And I'm curious how you think of it today. What, what compared to the kind of things we hear in a lot of the media that to, America is just wall to wall racist, and that there's no there's no ground on which you cannot be racist. Versus, what do you actually think is going on, and, and what are some of the distortive aspects of people's views that you see uh, going on today? Yeah, so that's a good question. It is tough to measure empirically the amount of racism in society. We've had polls going back a long time. Those polls show about five to 10% of Americans will agree with just outright racist statements um, about black inferiority or, you know, I, would, I wouldn't want my kid to marry a black person, et cetera. That's about 10%, five to 10% of the public will check, check those boxes of just being, you know, straight up old school racists. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of people that don't believe any of that stuff, or at least wouldn't cop to it on a poll, but might discriminate in their private lives in, in many different directions. And that's why you have 
callback studies. The, the gold standard is to send two identical resumes to the same person, one with say a black sounding name, one with a white sounding name, one with a Chinese sounding name, one with an Arab sounding name and see how many replies you get. And what those, what those um, studies find, and I cite the largest ever meta-analysis of those studies in my book, what it finds is that um, there's slightly less racism in America than there is in Europe. And the other thing they find is that, you know, whether you're talking about black people, Indians, Arabs, or Chinese, uh, East Asian, South Asian, you broadly get between 20 and 40% less callbacks um, than you would get with, with a white sounding name. Now, on its face, that looks like a pretty significant dose of discrimination. And it actually is. There's a considerable amount of discrimination. The, the, the subtlety, which I think a lot, of, a lot of people are incapable of holding two ideas at once, is that that discrimination is actually a very small determinant of a person's overall success compared to all of the other things that uh, that determine success, such as your level of skills, your uh, your human capital, to use the economist term. And the way we know that is because different groups that experience same the same amounts of labor market discrimination occupy totally different spots on the income spectrum. If you compare just, you know, compare Indian Americans to Pakistani Americans, there's a huge income gap, yet an employer couldn't tell them apart. You compare Chinese Americans to Hmong Americans, there's a huge income gap as well. You, you compare different white ethnic groups, compare uh, Americans, uh, white Americans of Russian descent, descent to white Americans of uh, French descent, there's a disparity of something close to 80 cents on the dollar. You compare Nigerian Americans to Haitian Americans, uh, Nigerian Americans do better than the average American. And so the fact that different groups that both experience the same levels of discrimination, never, nevertheless, opposite, uh, occupy literally opposite poles on the income spectrum from the highest quintile to the lowest, uh, suggests that disc racial discrimination is not a very powerful determinant of group outcomes, because if it were, we'd expect to find groups that experience lots of discrimination uniformly on the low end of the spectrum. And that's the opposite of what we find. I want to shift gears to talk about some of the arguments that you take on from the neo-racist, as you call them, the, the sort of intellectual vanguard of that position. And a couple of things that really leapt out at me is that so you challenge the, this conception of systemic racism, but it's a complicated issue. And I've heard different arguments about what might be, what that concept might be pointing to. I'm curious how you think of it. And then relating that to the issue that you brought up earlier, which is that neo-racism or the sort of anti-racists are actually a kind of racism and they're taking uh, dominating cultural institutions. So in, in a certain way, the people who are claiming to fight racism are pushing it into really important institutions, academia, news, media, and and so forth. So I'm curious to just understand a bit more how you see that as an influence today. And then we can maybe we can come back to systemic racism if you want. 
Yeah, so I guess two parts to that question. One is systemic racism. Um, systemic racism is a tricky subject. It's rarely defined. Uh, it's one of these phrases that people say over and over again. Uh, and sometimes I suspect they don't even quite know what they're saying when they say it. So the the original, my at least my understanding, the original idea of systemic racism comes from the book Black Power, written in 1967. They called it institutional racism. And they defined it as, you know, for example, um, a landlord that exploits you because you're black or a real estate agent that steers you to a different neighborhood because you're black. Um, in other words, what they meant by institutional racism was just racism that was nonviolent. In other words, it's not the KKK burning a cross on your lawn or lynching you. It's just uh, a human being being racist towards you in a perhaps subtle and nonviolent way. Over time, that idea, which is very easy to understand, and there's lots of evidence to prove that that kind of thing does still happen. Um, that has morphed into this, this idea that racism is like a gas that just fills up the whole space of the country. Even if you can never see it, it's like a, it's like carbon monoxide. It's like a colorless, odorless gas. And you don't need to prove that it's there. You just kind of know it's there and it's affecting everything. Um, and what, what it's functioned as is, is a way of not having to actually prove that racial discrimination is the cause of some particular problem. You can just sort of gesture at systemic racism um, and say, and indict a whole institution. The way that people end up doing this is, is they'll basically just look at a gap. They'll say, look, um, black people are 13% of the population, but you know, 35, 40% of people in prison, that gap is evidence of systemic racism. Uh, now I, I have a whole section of a chapter in the book dedicated to, uh, debunking this understanding of racism. Thomas Sowell has spent a whole career um, proving why this way of thinking, why gaps generally aren't caused by racism, but are caused by other factors. Uh, but systemic racism has basically become a synonym for black people are 13% of the population, but not 13% of everything else. And then to get to the second half of your question, that becomes a way of justifying policies that racially discriminate in favor of black people, against white people, sometimes against Asians, sometimes against white Hispanics, but sometimes for Hispanics. Um, it becomes a justification for injecting racial discrimination into every walk of life in the name of combating systemic racism. So uh, th that's how the allegation of systemic racism actually leads to racially rigging every aspect of, of society from, from uh, whether you get into college to whether you get a certain job in corporate America. I want to uh, talk a bit about the issue of diversity, which really has leapt into people's awareness lately. And there was uh, 
more more and more sensitivity to this issue of diversity, equity, inclusion, but just to bracket that and talk about diversity as something that has been seen as a value and in higher education. So what, how do you understand that issue? Are you, do you favor it? Do you think it's confusing? Is there some position on it that could be salvaged from sort of the conventional perspective? So if we're to talk about diversity in higher education specifically, I think that there is value in meeting people who are not from where you're from. Um, I don't think that 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 may overlap with race, but it's actually not the same thing as race. Um, If I were to be college roommates with a black person from a totally different reality, different part of the country, an Ethiopian, let's say, um, that would be an ex- that could at least be an experience of enriching diversity with even though we're of the same race. Um, so to that extent, I'm a I'm a xenophile. I like to travel. I like to meet people from different backgrounds. I think that 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 enriches life. Um, but col- a higher education has to decide what it's actually about because on the one hand, it says it's about diversity. Uh, on the other hand, it has black only, all of these colleges, higher, uh, elite colleges have black only dorms. A lot of them have options of black only graduations. Um, they essentially allow you to get on campus as a freshman and live your life in as much of a black only experience as possible. So how does it work? Is it that a white person, a white student is enriched by being around black and Hispanic and Asian students, but a black student is, is hurt by being around white students. So they should be able to sequester themselves for four years in a black only student dorm and a safe space. This doesn't make any sense. I've known, um, many, many, members of my family, many people have actually gone to uh, historically black colleges and universities like Howard and Spelman and so forth. Uh, many of them have very good experiences in an environment that is not diverse at all. So one question I have is, is diversity a value for white people, but not for uh, non-whites? And how does, how does that work? Um, more broadly, if we're gonna talk about diversity in the workplace, Um, if I'm going to hire someone to run my podcast, I don't care what race that person is. I'm trying to get the best person for the job. Uh, most jobs benefit from getting the most competent people and not paying attention to what race they are. Now I would grant there are some jobs where you need a racially diverse workforce in order to do the job. For example, if the NYPD were all white, that would be a huge problem because the police need to be viewed as legitimate by the community. And if the community sees a bunch of white guys, um, it's going to be actually harder for the police to do their job. But I would argue most jobs are much more like firefighting than they are like policing. If, if you're hiring a firefighter, you just want to get the most competent people from the job. It doesn't matter what they look like. The fires don't care. So I think most jobs are more like firefighting than policing in that they don't rely on the perceived legitimacy of the community necessarily in order to do their jobs. 
And so I think it's a legitimate, um, legitimate right of employers to think pretty uniquely and solitarily about competence and not about um, racial diversity. In the time we have remaining, I want to be conscious of your schedule. I, I, a couple more questions, and I'm going to read something to you from the book that resonated with me really strongly. I want to, maybe you can help us understand, help the audience understand where you're coming from on this. So you you have something you call the forgiveness treadmill. I'm going to read back some of your words to you. Quote, sometimes the ability to continue demanding the apology is worth more than the apology itself. Sometimes the debt is worth more unpaid than paid, close quote. I thought that was really insightful. I'm curious how you think of that. And just maybe you could give us the context around which that arises in your thinking about this issue. Yeah, so there's um, <clears throat> there's a longstanding trend among so-called anti-racist thinkers to say that uh, America doesn't care about its past. America doesn't want to atone for slavery. America doesn't even want to educate people about slavery. Um, um, America has never issued an apology for slavery. America hasn't done anything really by, by way of atonement or reparations. <clears throat> now, let's actually look at the record. In 2004, the Senate officially apologized for lynching. In 2008 and 2009, uh, both houses of Congress individually apologized for slavery and Jim Crow. Uh, at least nine or 10 different individual states have issued formal apologies for slavery. Uh, we have um, a museum in Washington, D.C., a Smithsonian Museum, African-American History Museum that opened, I believe, in 2016 with an extensive exhibit on slavery in the Middle Passage. And they actually had to uh, they had to keep people out because it was overflowing with interest. Um, the idea that we don't care about our past is completely out of step with the evidence, even affirmative action which has been justified in the name of diversity for most of its lifetime, originally in the 60s, often went by the name compensatory justice because it was not about diversity at that time. It was about compensating black Americans for past discrimination. So it's not that America hasn't done anything in the spirit of reparations. It's that everything that has been done is immediately forgotten the moment that it's done. Now, why is that? If someone is demanding in good faith that you make an apology, and then you make the apology, and then they have amnesia the next, the next day and keep shifting the goalposts um, or conveniently forget that the apology was made, you have to understand that they don't actually want the apology, that what they want is the power that comes from the fact that you haven't apologized, or let's say the power that comes from the perception you haven't apologized, the power that comes from the perception that there is still a debt owed. If, if we were to actual, actually pay reparations for slavery to every 
um, every black person, every black descendant of slaves, I can guarantee you within a week, you would be seeing op-eds in the New York Times talking about how actually that that wasn't enough at all. Um, and how dare you think you could pay off the debt of slavery with a single check, the goalpost would be moved automatically. You could actually see this uh, in microcosm in the election of Barack Obama. Leading up to it, everyone, almost everyone said, there is no way a black president named Barack Hussein Obama can get elected in this country. Why? Because we're too racist. We're not ready for that yet. Boom, he gets elected two terms. And within almost within moments of the election, the same intellectual class that said he couldn't get elected because that would be evidence we've moved further than we have said, actually, don't you think that this means, don't go thinking this means anything. We're still just as racist as we were yesterday. We haven't made any progress. Um, and so essentially they just pocket the game that uh, was made to look impossible two seconds ago and shift the goalpost. You also saw this happen with, um, I'm going on long on this, but it's, it's important to realize what, that a game is being played. You also saw this happen with the federal holiday Juneteenth. There was a USA Today article in uh, sometime in 2020, I think, which argued we should make Juneteenth a federal holiday. Now, I, I agreed with this. I think it absolutely makes sense to have a federal holiday celebrating the end of slavery. It's one of the most important uh, moments in American history. However, the article said it's going to be super hard for us to pass this, presumably because there's so much resistance to historical soul searching in this country, right? Fast forward a few months, the, uh, the, the, the bill to make Juneteenth a federal holiday breezes through Congress with almost no opposition. We've been now set celebrating Juneteenth for three years. No one will ever remember that it was considered at one point to be um, a, a, a difficult proposition, right? Because of the moment something is done, acknowledging slavery uh, as, a, as a concession or validation to the demands being made, it's instantly forgotten. That's not a real good faith exchange. That's a game. And so people have to realize that this game, this is the game that's being played with reparations and every related issue. Coleman, I, I, a couple of last thoughts that I want to put before you. One is in one of your articles, it might be in the book, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not remembering exactly, you say uh, you call race uh, a nefarious concept. And I wanted to see what you think of it. And in connection with the work, I don't know if maybe you've read his work, Thomas Chatterton Williams has a really powerful book about his experiences as a father. And the thrust of that book is, as I took it, is it's time to move away from this concept. It's not helpful. It's actually more divisive than people realize. And I'm curious your view of it. So you call it nefarious. Do you, are you in line with the view that he's putting forward that it's better to move away from it, maybe think of another way to think of ourselves in other terms, more maybe uh, as individuals rather than members of races. I just want to sound you out on that perspective, if you're familiar with it. Yeah, Thomas is a brilliant writer who I broadly agree with. Um, our, our friend Camille Foster goes even further and actually he does not refer to himself as black. 
he refers to himself as, you know, Camille, or if, if you want to call him ethnically Jamaican, that would be, he would be fine with that. And as a human being, but he does not identify as black. He'll correct you if he's called black. Um, my approach to it has been that, you know, I'm the convention of, of the time I'm born into is that I'd be referred to as half black, half Hispanic, um, or half Puerto Rican, if you prefer, or Afro Latino, if you prefer these, these labels don't mean very much to me. Uh, I don't think they say anything deeper about who I am other than where the majority of my ancestors used to live. And I'm fine for people to use these labels so long as they understand that they don't mean anything, right? They, they don't mean anything deep about a person's identity, about their beliefs, about their character, about their values. As long as we understand that they're superficial, I'm fine for them to be used. Uh, but the problem is people, people believe that they stand in for deeper character traits, right? Robin D'Angelo in her book, she writes that um, she strives to be less white. What does it mean to stri- try to be less white? It could only mean anything if you think that whiteness is a stand-in for character traits. And she goes on to list the character traits she has in mind. Striving to be less white means striving to be less ignorant, for example, she says. Um, these are pernicious ideas. Any idea w- which equates race with a, a character trait is is uh, that those are the ideas that we have to that we have to uh, get past. Um, so broadly, I do think that race it's inherently divisive, but that divisiveness wouldn't be a problem if people didn't invest it with deeper meaning. If people just viewed it, uh, the point Sam Harris makes, if, if people just viewed it as similar to hair color, well, hair color is in, in theory could be divisive, but it's just that everyone knows that it doesn't mean anything, whether you're blonde, brunette, whether you have b- black hair, whether you have red hair, et cetera. So it's, it's the mere fact of categorization, I suppose, is not really the problem. It's the investment people make in it. So I wanted to close out the conversation by asking you to give us in in a nutshell your vision for a way forward so if the arguments for colorblindness that you're putting forward the space you're creating for people to advocate for this and to, to, to hold these views what is what are some of the key things you want to see happen what would you encourage people to do to move us forward well first i would encourage you to to redouble or find your commitment to colorblindness in your own life, um, that is with your friends and family, um, and in your own beliefs. And uh, I think there are there are also things that we can do at at the, at the level of policy to minimize and uh, get rid of many of the racial triaging that we have. Um, Richard Hanania has a book where he makes. A recent book where he makes many recommendations about how to get race out of uh, the essentially the, the 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 system of federal race triage that we have that's developed over the past fifty years 
Some of that has to do with executive orders that can be reversed. Um, others, uh, others of that has, has to do with, um, you know, the Supreme Court. Um, I think overturning affirmative action was a great choice. And, and so there's, there's lots of things that can be done on the public policy front to undo to a large extent the, the system of sort of mandated racial discrimination that has slowly taken hold over the past 50 years, mostly through bureaucracies, uh, the federal bureaucracy and, um, and, and, and judicial decisions than through actual law. Most of it's happened through undemocratic means and it can therefore in principle be undone through those same means. Uh, but also we need a wider cultural change. We need more people to become confident enough to say in public, I am pro colorblindness. I try to treat people without regard to race and I don't want race anywhere in my public policy. I don't want to be enshrining racial discrimination um, in my public policy and I don't want to vote for it. I don't want to stand for it. So we need, I guess I would say three levels. One is the personal level of your own life. One is at the level of, you know, executive orders, bureaucratic decisions, uh, and so forth. And one is at the level of the culture. Well, Coleman Hughes, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I appreciate the book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I learned a lot. The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. I, I wish you well with that. Thanks very much. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.